Ramble. If I offered you two different pairs of jeans and I told you that you can only wear one of them, you could probably decide in two seconds. But what if I offered you a thousand pairs of jeans and they're all slightly different and I said you can only wear one of these for the next 12 months straight. This will be your go-to pant of choice. What are you going to do? How do you even start to choose? That's exactly what I felt like when I was combing through thousands of listings whenever we were moving to a new apartment. I would spend hours a day stressing about, is this apartment in a good neighborhood? Is it going to accommodate my dogs? Does it fit my budget? I didn't know any of these. And the worst part is most of the listings didn't even tick all of my boxes. That is why Apartments.com is your best place to look for your new home. Apartments.com lets you filter your search based on whether you have pets, if you want a balcony, built-in AC, whatever it is that you're looking for. The website remembers your search so that you don't have to keep filtering every time you come back. And Apartments.com has more rental listings than anywhere else, meaning no matter how specific your needs are, they got you. And your instant alerts mean that you can spend less time online looking for the perfect place and more time doing you. So if you're looking for a new place to call home, head over to Apartments.com, apartments.com, the place to find a place. Bada bing, bada boom. Welcome to this week's main episode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue, and let's talk about Nicole. Nicole's phone was ringing. It was from one of her best friends. Hey, slut. Yeah, she called everybody a slut, okay? Everybody that she liked, anyway. What's like up? It. You like it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice ring to it. It's welcoming. She said, What's up? Hey. I, I just got a call from some random girl and she just told me that you have AIDS. Nicole hung up and she's like, what? Who the hell would do that? She started calling all of her friends to find out. Is somebody pranking her? Is this some sort of sick joke? You know, 15 year olds can be weird. Who would do something like that? Nicole called a close guy friend of hers. Did you get that call too? Oh yeah, I was just about to call. Some girl said that you were talking shit about me. It was weird. She also asked me if I'd seen you recently and I said no because we haven't seen each other. And she said, oh, well, did you know Nicole got ugly? She's not even pretty anymore. Nicole was so upset. Oh my God, are you serious right now? Did she say, did she say her name? Who is this? I don't know, Amina, Rina, Rhea, Rina. I think I have no idea who she is. I've never even heard of her. I don't know how she even got my number. Rina? Okay. Hold on. I'll call you back. I have another call coming. Nicole picks up the other line. Her, her life is falling apart at this point. All of her friends are calling her, telling her someone said this and this about her on the phone. And this line is another friend sobbing. Did you tell some girl named Rena that you hate me? She said that you hate me and you've been making fun of me for months. She said that you have AIDS and your eyebrows are fake. Nicole was losing it. Her mind was spinning. For a high school girl, these types of rumors would be the end of her reign as the princess of the school. She was the most popular, the prettiest girl that everybody was jealous of. But now, Rena was out here trying to take her crown, trying to take her down. No, absolutely not. Nicole would rather die than let that happen. As always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com, but there is an incredibly well-researched emotional book on this case called Under the Bridge by Rebecca Godfrey. She personally interviewed the killers as, as well as hundreds of other witnesses, including family members, detectives who worked on this case, social workers. She sat in on the trials, the retrials. She studied police records, court transcripts. I mean, this is such a meticulously researched book. I think the book was very easy to read in the sense that there were stories that were in the book that weren't pertinent to the crime. So she really helps ease the reader into the story. And seeing that this is a very, very, very heavy subject matter, I really appreciated that. So with that being said, let's get into it. 
The two teenagers were told the same thing. Maybe it's a common saying. Maybe it was a sick, fateful phrase. I don't know. Warren was probably eating his cereal at the breakfast table. Grace sat down to talk with him. You know, Warren, this gang stuff that you're involved in, sweetie, you need to cut it out. It's either going to land you in prison or you're going to end up dead. Warren looked at her. He pondered for a moment and he just kind of brushed it off. He knew what he was doing at this ripe age of 15 years old. Are you kidding? I'm a man now. I'm going to be fine. On the other side of town, Rena was with her favorite uncle. He looked at the gang sign that she had penciled into her skin. He said, Rena, sweetie, what is that? Oh, it's a gang. I know, but I'm, I'm going to tell you something and I want you to listen carefully. That type of life, it's either going to land you in prison or you're going to end up dead. Both these teenagers heard the same thing and both Warren and Rena shrugged it off. The idea of jail and dying seemed so far away from their lives. They were just teenagers, but it would happen. One of them would die and the other one would go to prison for their murder. Let's start with Warren. Warren Glowatsky never thought that he was a killer. Maybe even down to the last second when he was standing over a lifeless body under the bridge, he probably didn't think he was a killer, but he was. And just by looking at his life, it's hard to pinpoint when the shift happened because Warren was always this soft puppy-like guy. So Warren was born in a small town in Canada called Medicine Hat. He wasn't exactly unwanted, but he did feel like he shouldn't have been born. The thing about both of his parents is that they were hot. <laughs> they, they were really attractive. It said that his dad had a bit of that Clint Eastwood appeal. You know, the stereotypical, attractive, quiet, masculine energy that just radiated off of this guy. Like he definitely knew how to fix a sink. You got a leaky sink? Let me get up in there. <laughs> you know, that's the type of guy. And Warren's mom, she was really pretty. But more importantly, she was a huge Clint Eastwood fan. So yeah, the two of them only got together because of how hot they found the other person, which is not the worst thing in the world. I mean, it's completely fine, but maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> you sound jealous. <laughs> no, but it, maybe you shouldn't bring a child into it is what I'm saying. Too they didn't really love each other. They didn't really oh. match in personalities. Okay. They were just attracted to each other because both of them were hot. I see, I see, I see. Right? Okay. So it was not really a love-based relationship. Okay. And what's wild is that they didn't even try to have a child. Warren's mom had her tubes tied. But still, somehow, she got pregnant with him. Later, he would ask, Mom, isn't that nearly impossible? What do you mean you got pregnant with me? She would just nonchalantly respond, Yeah, you must have been one strong sperm kiddo. Needless to say. Nobody was expecting him. And when he popped out, his parents vowed to stay together for him, which sounds romantic. It sounds noble, but it wasn't. Warren felt it. It was a disaster from the get-go. The two parents hated each other and spent all day screaming at each other over what? Just about anything. They're the type of couple that could be folding the sheets together one moment and then using it as a tug-of-war rope while yelling at each other about how they're doing it wrong. And poor Warren would just be caught in the middle being slapped around by the sheets because they're just tugging at it. He'd be looking up at his parents' red faces. I mean, they just look like they hated each other. He's thinking to himself, if I wasn't born, they probably wouldn't be together and they probably wouldn't hate their lives. But it's so weird because after all of these passionate fights, neither parent had any energy left to show love to Warren. So they're staying together for Warren, but in reality... They're just traumatizing him more. They're depriving him of parental love because they're exhausted and miserable. I mean, what is that TikTok that was going around? That's like, better to get divorced and co-parent responsibly so your child can say they came from a broken home and not that they live in a broken home. Warren's home life was broken. 
It was incredibly toxic. To add to that, the family just couldn't sit still. It's like the parents had a fire lit under their ass. They lived in this tiny little trailer with one room and just one bed. Warren didn't even have his own room. He didn't have his own stuff. He just had a couch and they'd be on the move constantly. Warren couldn't even have friends he could keep. He really didn't have anything. Everything that he owned could be stuffed into one small duffel bag. Early on, Warren knew not to get attached to anything including people, because he would just lose it anyway. But the only thing he couldn't let go of for his entire life was his desperate need for affection. It's like he was dying for his mom to just look at him, maybe for her to just walk up to him and give him a hug or make him breakfast just one time. He was dying for a maternal figure, so much so that any female teacher, any guidance counselor, he just like latched on. He sunk his little teeth into them and tried to become their son in a way. I mean, it was so obvious that he wanted a loving maternal figure in his life, but his own mom, who noticed this, who knew this, she never stepped up to the plate. She was chronically drunk. She really couldn't care what Warren did on a daily basis, as long as he bought her home some cigarettes. By the time that he was 15, he had learned how to drive. He didn't even have a driver's license at this point. He just learned to drive and hoped nobody would pull him over, which is super legal. His mom didn't care as long as he ran her errands for her, brought her some food and her cigarettes. Their trailer always reeked of that pungent smell of cigarettes. Just wasn't pleasant. A lot of Warren's vivid memories were of him laying on the couch, so tired, wanting to go to sleep, but the walls are so paper thin. He could just hear his parents going at it in the bedroom. And all of this, all of the pressure at home, the stress, the lack of attention and love, Warren got into some things that he probably shouldn't have, like drugs. I don't even think he did the drugs to numb the pain of his home life. Warren said, at this point, all I cared about was being a bad boy. Maybe he thought it would toughen him up for what was about to come, the inevitable. Maybe he was more surprised that it hadn't happened sooner because his parents hated each other. Eventually, the hate would get to be too much and the thin dam holding back the dark waters of resentment, they were going to crumble. And it did. It wasn't that climactic, though. Warren's dad just got up after a fight and said, you know what? I'm freaking done. I'm going to Las Vegas and I'm going to meet a rich widow and you will never see me or Warren again. He spat at Warren's mom. And sure enough, next morning, Warren and his dad leave the trailer and move into a small town called View Royal. Still in Canada. It's like the opposite of Las Vegas. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah, <laughs> it was a really small town, maybe about 8000 people out of that population. Probably not a large demographic of rich widows. View Royal was known as, and I quote, the wrong side of the tracks. Not the best area, but to Warren, it was heaven. I mean, it might as well have been Las Vegas to Warren. It was where Warren would meet his first love and where he would commit murder. The two are surprisingly unrelated. So at the Royal, Warren had to go sign himself up for school. And yet his dad just didn't believe in it. He didn't even believe it existed. He's like, it's a conspiracy. The teenagers aren't going to school. Where's the school? Where's the school? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but he really didn't believe in school. Like, just didn't believe it was good. He said, teachers are a bunch of yammering idiots. Why would you want to learn from them? I could teach you so much more. <laughs> so Warren signs himself up for school, and uh, that's how he ends up enrolled in Shoreline School. Shoreline was not the best school. It wasn't a horrible school. It was like the only school in the area. It was underfunded, chronically understaffed, but it seemed like the guidance counselors and the teachers, they cared about the students. They just didn't have enough time to care for all the students. So things just kind of went to shit. And that's why Shoreline's reputation went down the gutter. The kids thought it'd be cute and quirky to scratch out the S on their school buses. 
So instead of it saying shoreline, it would say whoreline. Even when another student pointed out, did you know that whore isn't spelt like that? There's a W. Everyone still laughed and said, you just said whore. (laughs) 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 Like what? (laughs) The whole school was overrun with teenagers who just seemed desperate to be cool and rebellious, which I don't know, isn't that every school? But I guess Shoreline did take it to an extreme. Instead of having your cool jocks, the cheerleaders, Shoreline didn't have that. Mainly because the school was so underfunded that they couldn't even afford to have a cheerleading team. Instead, they had gangs. Yeah. If you were a popular kid at Shoreline Middle School, you would most likely be part of the popular kids. And all the popular kids were part of a gang called the Crips. The Crips is an actual gang in Los Angeles. I'm to. Oh, so this is a middle school version. Yeah, so the Crips are in like 41 states of the U.S. Maybe they're international. I don't know if they're in Canada. I only know about the Crips because of song and pop culture references of the bloody rivalry between the Crips and the Bloods. And Crips are notoriously love the color blue and the Bloods love the color red. But I did some digging and like, come pick me up, mom. I'm so scared. Gangs are so wild. The Crips are one of the largest, most violent associations of street gangs in the United States. It's said that there are still tens of thousands of members that are active all around the U.S. And at least in the 80s, probably more now, they were focused on dealing drugs in the U.S. and even formed alliances with Mexican cartels. They also loved armed robbery. That's like a thing. They love it. So, uh, yeah. Who knows what they're up to now? And just to clarify, none of the kids in Shoreline had real ties to the actual gang, the Crips, but they just pretended they did. I guess in their minds, they were forming another segment of the big Crips gang and they just were going to be a part of it. The cool kids would illegally tattoo the letter C on their hand, C for Crips, behind their parents' back to show their devotion to the gang. Other kids who had stricter parents would just draw on a C every single day with Sharpie. And sure, every kid could sit there and draw a C on their hand every morning with a black ballpoint pen. It's not that hard, but that doesn't mean that you're part of the Shoreline Crips. Not until you're initiated. The initiation took inspiration from real gangs. If you wanted to join the Shoreline Crips, you had to get jumped by the Shoreline Crips, which is exactly what Warren did. He agreed to get beat up until he bled. The senior gang members kicked him down and just whacked him, punched, stomped, kicked, and spat on him until they decided enough is enough. Then they extended their hand down to him, helped him up, wiped the blood off his lip, gave him a pat on the back. Welcome to the Crips. Which I always think that's weird as an initiation because if you just beat me up, I don't want to be your friend. Why would I want to join your gang now? Like, I feel like we have beef. But they're just suddenly expected to be best friends. Just sorry for beating you up. You understand, right? Anyone want to get some ice cream? I mean, shit, we're in the Crips. Anyone want to go get some bitches? They're middle schoolers. So it's official. Warren was now part of the Crips, and he had to look the part. They really didn't wear blue all the time. Although it was their default favorite color now, they just had rules to never wear red. That was a big no-no. So Warren thought, eh, I might as well wear white every single day because blue always looks good with white. So I'm going to wear white jeans, white shirts, and he even bleached his sweater white so that he could wear all white. That was his all-white look. His drawn-on C on his hand, and he picked a new name to fit his badassery now. Warren G., Warren the gangster, you know, he liked the ring of it. Snoop Dogg's cousin's name was Warren G. And it's alleged that he was actually part of the real Crips gang. So it's it's just perfect, right? Maybe it does have a badass ring to it. Maybe. Till I tell you what Warren looks like. 
First of all, Warren is one of those teenagers that just looks like a baby until the day he probably turns 36. He had this cheeky baby face. He just looked like a little boy. I mean, he is, but he just really looked like a little boy. He's 5'4", 115 pounds, these big blue eyes with like the longest eyelashes you've ever seen that almost make you question if he's wearing mascara. Not that anything's wrong with him wearing mascara, but it was just abnormally long. I mean, the other older girls nicknamed him Little Cutie. They would come up to him and pinch his little cheeks and say, Hey, Little Cutie. He's very innocent looking, you know? So I don't know if Warren G had the effect that he wanted it to have. Girls loved to hit on him, though. Not because he was Warren G, but because he was very attractive in almost this innocent way, almost in this endearing way. A bunch of older girls would give him Polaroids of themselves with little hearts and love messages written on the back. Warren would keep every single one of them in his wallet because, you know, gang life. But out of all the pictures, there was one that he pulled out more, more often than the others, to look at it, to goggle at it, to drool at it. And that was the picture of Sarita. She was one of the top five most beautiful girls at the school. None of this was subjective, no. They literally had a group that everybody called the five of the top five most beautiful girls at the school. So Hmm. just everything's really straightforward in this one. Okay, just five pretty girls, but they weren't mean. I mean, it sounds like we're going to have mean girls, but they weren't. I know you're having those PTSD flashbacks to bullying in high school, but these girls were really nice. They wanted to befriend everyone, including Sarita. Her go to saying was, if I can show someone that I'm a good person on the inside, that's more important to me than showing someone I'm good looking on the outside. Sarita's father had Spanish blood, but she barely knew him. He had moved away and left her mom to take care of her. Sarita's mom was doing a fantastic job, by the way. She always taught Sarita, never let someone talk down on you. For example, when Sarita's mom remarried, the new stepdad refused to help around the house, and he responded by saying, I'm not doing the dishes. That's a woman's job. Sarita's mom calmly got up from her chair, got into his face and said, If you want to eat another meal in this house, don't you dare talk like that in my house. Got it? She was very admirable, competent, confident, beautiful. So in return, Sarita is like picking these things up from her mom. She's very wise for her age, which just added to her appeal in school. She was really beautiful. She had this dark, luscious hair and these full lips. Literally, the look that every high school kid or every middle school kid would be tripping over themselves in the hallway for. She was born blind in her right eye, which is interesting because her parents said it was a wild coincidence. Her mom named her after Stevie Wonder's wife. Stevie Wonder is blind, and his wife's name is Sarita, and she didn't know till someone pointed it out after. Anyway, Warren, after weeks and weeks of staring at Sarita's picture in his wallet, he decided, yeah, I'm going to ask her out. <laughs> so so he, she gave the photo to him. Yeah. Okay. But so did a bunch of girls, right? Okay. So he goes up to her and he's like, hey, do, do you want to go on a date with me? Uh, sure. As long as you don't mind that I'm getting braces in the morning. Warren thought it was the cutest response ever because why would he care? Do guys really care that you have braces? Probably not. He's head over heels for her. And from that moment, they were inseparable. Warren latched onto her. I think all that yearning for a mother figure, he just kind of dumped it on Sarita. He would go around saying, first love, true love. That was his motto. Warren even loved Sarita's family. They were the opposite of his. Sarita's mom was warm and welcoming. Their house was always bright and put together. He loved Sarita's compassionate nature. I mean, she took care of him. He felt like he finally belonged, and he was just so desperate, so desperate to make Sarita's family love him. He was so in love with Sarita that at just 15 years old, 
She's 14. He proposed to her. <laughs> uh, what? She ever so gently turned him down and said, you know, we're too young right now. But I know that when I grow up and graduate high school, I'm going to want to spend every day of my life with you. I love you as much as you love me. But we should definitely wait, yeah? Warren would wait. He would do anything for Sarita. She was his first love, his true love. And just as Warren's life was looking up and he went from being obsessed with the gang life to being the caring, gentle boyfriend that just wanted to be with Sarita all the time, Warren's dad sat him down and said, Hey, uh, some wild shit happened, all right? So remember how I said I was going to go to Vegas to find a a widow, a rich widow? (laughs) Yeah, I found one. Not in Vegas, in California. So I'm going to go live with her in San Clemente or San something. She said San something. Anyway, I'm going to go tonight. You coming? Dad, I... My whole life is here. My friends, I can't leave Sarita. Okay, bye. Well, I'm taking the trailer, so pack your stuff up by tonight. The dad could not care less. He just got up and left, leaving Warren without a home. Just a duffel bag filled with all of his worldly possessions, which were three pairs of white jeans, a few shirts, one sweater, and his two short rap CD. And he just walked out of the trailer. The dad just looked back and casually said, see you later. There was no, love you, son. Be careful, son. Be smart. Call me when you can. Stay in school. Let's stay in touch. Just TTYL, Tyler. Shit, your name's not Tyler? Fuck, I meant Warren. Like, it's, is that even your son? Warren and his sad duffel bag make it to Sarita's house. He asked maybe he could stay a while until he found his own place. But Sarita's mom did not allow it. So Warren just starts roaming around looking for a place. Which again, is just so wild that someone leaves a 15-year-old with no roof over their head. Eventually, Warren was taken in by one of his good friends. Grace was his friend's mom, and she was a single mom. Who's kind, caring. Again, everything Warren had been hoping for in his own mom, but never found. For the first time since he was six years old, Warren slept on a bed instead of a couch. He felt wanted and loved. He went out of his way to be polite and gracious around Grace. He didn't even want her to give any reason at all to kick him out when his clothes got dirty. He felt embarrassed, and he felt like a burden to ask Grace for quarters. So he'd bring his little duffel bag of clothes to Sarita's place to do his laundry. And you know, Warren is Warren G, the gang member. He was happy and excited to see Sarita, but whenever he came over to do his laundry, he just looked so ashamed. He just looked so embarrassed. And Sarita never said anything, but she felt bad. She almost saw her own boyfriend as this puppy that she had to protect and guide. She knew that he was trying not to bother Grace. He was so grateful. He genuinely wanted to spend time with Grace. Like, terrified of her getting mad at him. She was warm. She was protective. She, she made him feel safe. She even sewed Warren G on his baseball cap so he would feel cool at school. They were bonding. And Grace did try to be a good parental figure. She sat him down one day and told him, Look, Warren G is all cool. I like the persona. But I have to tell you something. Gangs are never the answer. You're either going to end up dead or in jail. As it turns out, Warren would end up in jail and back on the streets because Grace would kick him out. Yep, just kicked him out one day. She said, sorry, Warren. I know, I know it's hard, but I I was dating this guy named Reggie and he was in jail, but he's coming out now. So there's just not going to be enough room for you. Sorry. Warren's like, it's okay. He tried not to let his overwhelming sadness and disappointment show. Are you kidding? He was just so happy and now all of it was gone. He had nobody to turn to. It was all too much for him. Maybe he felt too pressured and too angry and too sad. And maybe he just needed to let out his anger. Maybe that's why he helped kill Rena Verk. Let's talk about Rena. Rena Verk was from an immigrant family, a hardworking immigrant family. 
Rina's dad was born and raised in India, where he was quite the studious child. He ended up mastering in English in college and wanted to teach English in India. But it seemed like fate had other plans. One day, he gets a letter from his sister from Canada, and it's a, included as a magazine of Canada. And he just stood there, jaw-dropped, looking at these pictures. You're kidding. British Columbia, arguably one of the prettiest parts of Canada. Don't cancel me, Canadians, but absolutely breathtaking. He's looking at these pictures going... I can't believe a place like this exists in this world. Are you kidding? The trees, the rocks, the mountains, everything looks freshly washed, like like the produce section where they constantly miss the produce. It looks like that. It looks so pristine and green and vibrant. There's no dirt. There's no trash. No, it doesn't even look like there's bugs. So he teased his sister and he's like, no way. <laughs> it's a magazine. That's not a real place. She's like, well, come see for yourself. I'm settled in now and I want you guys to visit. He was 23 years old when he first stepped foot in Canada. He said it was more incredible than he had ever imagined. So beautiful, so lush, just magnificent. And he fell in love with Canada and a young Indian woman named Suman all at once during the span of his trip. And that was that. I mean, his fate was sealed. It was settled. He was going to move to Canada. He moved to Victoria, got married, found himself jobless and stressed. So his teaching credits couldn't be transferred from India to Canada. So if he wanted to be a teacher, he would have to spend another four years in school. He's like, I can't do that. He thought about being a pharmaceutical salesman, which would mean that he'd make pretty good money, but he'd have to travel. And his wife was pregnant. He wanted to be home with her. He said, and I quote, and so I became a lumberjack. You have to survive. I worked at the local mill. The pay wasn't great. It wasn't ideal. I missed home all the time, but I made the best of it. And it was all worth it when Rena was born. After Rena was born, the family relocated to View Royale. It was a small community. It, it wasn't upscale or that prestigious, but they just needed a family-oriented area and some security. That's all. They wanted the best for Rena, but Rena lived in a society that rejected her. Okay, every second-generation immigrant is going to stand up for this one because it gets wild. Growing up, she felt like an outcast. So there weren't a lot of Indians in this area. She grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. So she's like a double outcast, right? Being Indian made her an outcast in View Royale. And add to that, her entire family were Jehovah Witnesses. Not that Rena wanted to be, but they were. And everyone knew it. So there you have it. Double outcast. The reason that Rena's family converted to becoming Jehovah Witnesses is actually a cute story. Rina's grandma moved to Canada to be closer with the family. So she moved in with them and she couldn't speak English. She felt isolated, alone and confused and she had nobody and she's just getting old. The neighbors didn't like having a foreign neighbor. They didn't even try to make nice or even pretend like they weren't racist, which they definitely were. It's crazy when sometimes you see how people treat foreigners so blatantly racist. Like, yeah, we don't speak English, but we're not dumb. We understand social cues. We understand the look that you're giving people. We understand the look you're giving us. Like, we understand you hate us. You don't have to make it so obvious. We don't need to speak the same language to get that across. So that's how Rena's grandma felt. But then she met some really old sweet women who happened to be Jehovah's Witnesses. They were kind to her. They accepted her. They tried to teach her English. And through their kindness, Rena's grandma became a believer. And she converted the whole family to the religion. But it just didn't help Rena feel more accepted. She found it really difficult to have a social life. Everyone around her made her feel insecure because she was Indian. She felt overweight. She felt like her religion made her seem weird. The town's idea of pretty was your stereotypical blonde hair, blue eyes, super skinny. So that's that. Rena would never fit in no matter how hard she tried, but she would never stop trying. Rena didn't know that she was beautiful. She didn't know that her name meant the mirror. And in some ancient languages, the name Rena meant the queen. She didn't know that. 
she just knew that nobody accepted her. And that tore her apart. My dog Mango has been with me through some really crazy times in life. I mean, she's been with us for the past 10 years. If you guys don't know, Mango is my little French bulldog with half hair. Okay, she's fuzzy only half the time. And she is literally the glue of my family. I have quite literally named an entire podcast and a YouTube channel from my dog Mango. She is the reason that these channels exist. But three years ago, Mango was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease and she was always at risk of excessive bleeding. Her fur was falling out in clumps. It was it was a pretty stressful time in my life. I was constantly emotional about Mango being in pain and then I would be, get so stressed out every time I started going over the vet bills. Every time we took her to the vet, it was like thousands of dollars because her condition was so difficult to treat. And I am just so thankful that we had savings to cover it. I wish I had known about Spot Pet a few years back. It would have just eased so much of that stress. Our partner, Spot Pet Insurance, is here to share a message today on how they are a secret weapon against the unexpected. Because with Spot Pet Insurance, you can get up to 90% cash back on eligible vet bills. Our dogs are always there for us during our hardest times, and we need to be there for them too. Go to SpotPet.com today and get a quote instantly. Visit SpotPet.com. Paid ad from Spot Pet Insurance. Waiting periods, annual deductibles, coinsurance, benefits, Benefit limits and exclusions may apply. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample policy. Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. When I was in high school, I had this ritual every day after coming home from school. I would grab a salty snack, sit down, watch my favorite mystery drama on TV. And recently I discovered the adult version of that, which at the end of the workday, I grab salt and vinegar chips, snuggle up on the couch, and I play June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden objects mystery game that makes me feel like I'm living inside of a mystery TV show that is very immersive. You play as Detective June Parker, and you just found out that your sister and husband were murdered. This is a fictional story. So you fly from London to New York to investigate, but the clues are just not adding up. So you get to go through these series of scenes from the mansion living room to a lavish garden to a 1920s style New York cafe. In each room, you have to find hidden objects that help you solve the mystery of your sister's death. And in the meantime, a whole lot of unexpected just scandalous twists are going to happen. There's family secrets, danger, there's romance. I love traveling all over the world with June. Currently, I'm exploring Paris in the 1920s. Because the game is set in the 1920s, it just has the most aesthetic game design ever, and it's so cozy. Whenever I need a break from the suspense, I can pause the story and head over to my private island. Yeah, they give you a private island, and you get to customize it however you want for you. I love cottage core mixed with that old money vibe with a huge mansion and a luxurious garden and even like this train rail. June's journey is the best way to unwind at the end of a long day or just to take a break in the middle of the day when I feel overwhelmed. I can escape all of my problems and turn into Detective June. Discover your inner detective when you download June's journey for free today on iOS and Android. So every day she would wake up like a lot of second generation immigrants who just, they don't fit in. They're a little bit confused, chasing approval. I mean, honestly, I don't blame her. It's rough. You feel like you're lacking something. You feel like you have to overcompensate. So I really feel for her. She felt like these are all things that she couldn't change about herself. But maybe, maybe if she overcompensated and seemed cool enough, people would like her. They would accept her. So that's how Rena got into drugs and drinking. She wanted to feel like she was part of the cool kids. 
And her parents were shocked. It just wasn't like her to head down this path. This is not the Rena they knew. She started rebelling more against them, fighting them. She, she would miss family dinners and sermons, and she started getting so distant. She never confided in them anymore. They just wouldn't understand her. They would say, you have to be proud to be Indian. But when you're that young and you're in a predominantly not Indian neighborhood, it's very difficult. Are you kidding? Rena purposefully got herself into a group home so that she wouldn't have to listen to her parents anymore. And honestly, she thought it gave her badass points. So being in a group home, sometimes she would be in the group home. Sometimes she would go back home. Right. So it's like it's not a permanent situation. She thought, oh, being in a group home means I'm too rebellious. Like my parents couldn't handle me. So that gives me badass cool kid points. Rena getting admitted would set off a chain of events that would lead to her death before her 15th birthday. At the group home, Rena met a girl named Nicole Cook and another girl named Missy. So a lot of Canadian sources refer to them with pseudonyms because of a publication ban, but you can easily find their real names online. So let's talk about Nicole Cook. She was a very interesting character in the sense that she straight up gives off real life mean girl vibes. Her nickname was Princess. And she was the one enforcing this nickname. Nobody called her that. She called herself that. And then when you're like, hey, Nicole, she'd be like, ah, 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 princess. She loved it. She thought it matched the way that she looked with her big blue eyes and her heart-shaped lips. Sure, she was 14, but she loved wearing the world's smallest skirts and shorts. She spent hours doing her makeup every single morning. And she wasn't ashamed to say that she loved looking at herself. She would sit in front of a mirror for hours at a time, perfecting every little detail on her face. I don't know how to put it nicely, so I I won't. But Nicole was really obsessed with herself. (laughs) Just straight up. She felt like everyone else should be obsessed too. She really considered herself a celebrity. She genuinely wanted to be Blair Waldorf before there even was a Blair Waldorf. Her favorite song was a rap song about, and I quote, motherfucking power and motherfucking respect. The song's name was Somebody's Going to Die. It was a lot. Listen, I don't know if 14-year-old Nicole even knew about mother freaking power and respect, but she knew that she wanted it. Bottom line, Nicole thought she was hot shit and thought everyone should love her. She smoked weed. She bragged about how guys would give her free weed. She bragged about doing cocaine, even though everybody knew that she was lying about cocaine. She just wanted to seem cool. That was her thing. Another thing was that she called everybody sluts just for funsies. Straight up, good morning, sluts. All right, let's hit the buses, sluts. If you ask Nicole who her role model was, she would tell you Al Capone. Her dream was to become a real life gangster. (laughs) What? (laughs) Genuinely, her life goal was to be in a gang. I'm dead serious. That was her life goal. And she had a best friend named Kelly Ellard. Kelly wasn't nearly as much of a diva as Nicole. She was a bit more laid back. She kind of had this weird, awkward, shy kid personality. Her parents had money. They lived in this big house with a hot tub. But it seemed like in order for Kelly to be friends with Nicole, they must have bonded over something, right? They must have some sort of common ground. Maybe it was the anger. It said that both of them had some intense anger issues. Kelly would just straight up throw tantrums in class. If she ever got low marks in class, it wasn't her fault. It was the teacher's fault. She just had this crazy unresolved anger issue. Part of it is probably because her parents always saved the day. Whenever she got in trouble... Guess who's there to pick her up? Nicole was nowhere near as lucky. Her parents sent her away to the group home. Shoo now, go away. You got to take on the, someone else has to take on the task of raising the princess. We can't do it. So Nicole ends up in the group home and Kelly is her school best friend. But Nicole has a group home best friend, because you know, they're 15, named Missy. Missy had bounced around a lot before ending up in the group home. One of Missy's sisters even took her in at one point and she said, Missy, just watch the kids while I'm at work. You can stay here for free. 
I'm going to be less strict and less aggressive than mom is, right? How does that sound? Missy's nieces said, living with Missy was a living hell. All she did all day was mess up the house, play the loudest, most profane music ever, graffitied N-words rule on the wall. And, oh, if she wasn't doing that, she used to prank call people, telling them to lick her C-U-N-T and then threaten to kill them. So there's that. Missy's sister got all these reports from her kids of how horrible Missy is, but she didn't want to give up on her sister like everyone else did. She was going to be the one that was there for her. She just needed some love and support, right? Missy's sister hired a babysitter for when she was out at work. The babysitter was going to watch over her kids and Missy, but only after a few days, the babysitter pulls her aside and tells her, you know, your sister Missy is a very, very dangerous young lady. What? Why? She grabbed your daughter and put a knife up against her throat, threatened to kill her. That was the last straw. Missy's sister got CPS involved and they had to send Missy back to the group home. She did tell her though, Missy, you go and you grow a brain and you can always come back to me, okay? Just grow up a little. That would never happen. Back in the group home, Missy earned the nickname Miss Tough Girl. And it wasn't given to her ironically. She really was someone that you didn't want to mess with. She looked like she could throw you down with one arm. And the one thing that was a little odd, though, is that her voice didn't match her. So she had this really soft baby voice, a tender voice. But she looked like she could kill you. I think it almost added a layer of extra scary for the girls in the group home. Because, you know, it's, it's just the juxtaposition. They were all terrified of Missy. And that is precisely why Nicole Cook befriended her. She figured she'd be a good sidekick. This would ensure that no one would mess with Nicole. And what does Missy get out of it? The honor of being friends with me. Duh. So the two even dormed together. They were the first two people that Rena met when she entered the group home. And it wasn't even by choice. Nicole initiated their meeting by stealing Rena's hairdryer and mascara. Rena was pacing the room. You know, she had heard about Miss Tough Girl. Miss Tough Girl and her best friend had just stolen her freaking stuff. She didn't want to make an enemy out of them, but she really needed her stuff back. God, what do I do? What do I do? So Rena decides she has to say something. Not in a mean way. Just get her stuff back. Maybe it's all a misunderstanding. She stands outside the doorway of Nicole and Missy's room for minutes, maybe hours. She can't even remember. She had no idea how long. Just felt like forever. She stood there staring at the ground till finally Nicole felt like she had waited enough. Okay, Rena, you can come in now. Nicole was smirking. I don't know what happened in that room that day. But afterwards, Rena somehow became Nicole's friend. Well, maybe friend isn't a good word. She became Nicole's admirer. She was almost obsessed with being like Nicole, getting Nicole's approval, being liked by Nicole. Rena was starving for attention and she thought this was her chance. If Nicole liked her, everyone else would like her by default. I mean, Nicole's popular. She would finally fit in. If Nicole painted her nails blue, Rena would paint her nails blue. Rena even started writing the word Crip on her arm, signaling that she was part of the gang which she really wasn't. She had never gone through any initiation. And even if she had, it's not like they're all part of the actual Crip gang. I think Rena just wanted to feel like she belonged. She wanted to be a part of something. She wrote Crip on her hand and even bragged about being involved in gang activities. And one day when she was visiting her uncle, he saw it. He reached and snatched her arm and he was shocked. Like, what, what is that? Rena, what is that? Oh, it's a gang. I, I know what it is. Why are you writing it on your hand? Why are you writing it down? Oh, it's my new friends. I think they want to be... I think they want me in a gang. What? Rena, look at me. Look at me, okay? You get involved in stuff like that. You're either going to end up dead or in jail. Rena's uncle was right. And I find it so creepy that Warren got the same exact warning. And it gives me chills that one of them would end up dead while the other one ended up in jail because of the first person being dead. It gives me goosebumps. 
and Rena would end up murdered because of a stolen address book. That's a bit of an oversimplification. Of course, it's more complicated than that. But just remember, like I said, Rena just wanted Nicole and Missy to accept her. She even lied and tried to seem cool. She told them that she had a probation officer. They didn't buy it. In fact, Missy smirked and said, for fuck's sake, Rena, you can't have a PO if you've never been arrested. Rena looked hurt and surprised. But the two girls were kind of getting off on it. And Missy screamed out of nowhere, leave us alone, Rena. And she kept screaming that and screaming that until Rena left the room. And the two of them giggled about it later on. Like, did you see her face? Did you see? She was so scared. Oh my God, she's so annoying. Nicole was used to people worshiping her and she only hung out with people that she knew that she needed. Like her rich, well-connected friend Kelly. For example, one time, Nicole was driving around in a stolen car. She had flirted with a bunch of guys who had stolen that car and they gave it to her. So she's driving around, having a blast, listening to her motherfucking respect song. She felt like she was on top of the world. But I guess someone who really didn't like her, so let's call him Chris, right? Chris from school threatened to call the police on her because she kept harassing him to give him to give her free weed. So she's like, no. So he's like, no, I'm going to call the cops on you. Nicole was so freaked out. Like, is he serious? What if he does call the cops? I don't know what he's going to do. She calls up her friend Kelly and she's like, Kelly, I'm so scared. Like, I don't know what to do. Do you think Chris would actually call the cops on me? No. And Nicole, if he does, it's okay. Like, I'll take some of the blame. Just tell the cops that I stole the car. No, Cal, I would never do that. But you could and my parents could just help me out. She feels like her parents can do anything. Yeah. Nicole thought to herself, I guess I could. Because Kelly's a true friend. Kelly's like a sister. Kelly would do anything for Nicole. Kelly was fiercely loyal. A true friend. She would even commit murder for Nicole. So when Nicole's address book was stolen and she started getting all of these phone calls about her having AIDS, hating her friends, being ugly, shit-talking, having no eyebrows, Nicole and Kelly were equally pissed. Not for a single second did they think of why Rena would do this. Which, side note, I think Rena did it to be like, see, I can be bad too. Like, I cannot be part of your gang, just accept me, like, I can be cool. I genuinely don't think that this was some sort of weird revenge plot. I think that she thought... It's not a big deal. I mean, why else would she even tell these people that she's calling her name? She wants Nicole to know, and she wants Nicole to accept her. But Nicole didn't think that. And this part, I kind of can't blame her for not thinking that, because, you know, when you're young, you don't really think this deep into people's emotions. If one of my friends started spreading rumors about me, I don't know if I would just assume that they're doing it to prove their worthiness and get my approval. So Nicole thought, Rena's not my friend. Rena's trying to take me down. She's trying to ruin me and take away the only thing that I care about more than anything in this world. My popularity. Nicole starts ranting to Kelly about it. Can you believe it, Kelly? No, I mean, I can't believe that she did that to you. She's just jealous. She's doing it out of jealousy, that freaking bitch. Yeah, that freaking bitch. What the fuck does she think that she's doing? Doesn't she know who I am? I have friends. I know people. I have connections. I'm Nicole Cook. Nobody can fuck with me. Yeah, she's crazy. God, I hate her, Nicole. This would be a frequent conversation between the two. But the final straw was when Missy told Nicole that Rena had stolen her ex-boyfriend. Well, not really. Okay, in a teenage girl's mind, if you so much talk to a boy, look at a boy, walk home with a boy, maybe you're stealing them. And even though this is Missy's ex-boyfriend and Missy was never even a good friend to Rena, they just had this toxic confirmation bias at play and they were like, yeah, another reason to hate Rena. She stole Missy's ex-boyfriend. Did you see? She was wearing his Adidas jacket. Missy was pacing the room. She was fuming. She's pissed. She said, I can't do this anymore. She picked up the phone and called Rena, and she screamed into the receiver, the Crips are coming to your house to cap your ass. 
and Missy's 12-year-old nephew, who happened to be there, screamed into the phone, I'm going to come down there and kill you! Which, yeah, I'm sure that hammered the point home. Obviously not. Rena kept hanging out with Jack. Again, Missy was a horrible friend to her. Rena probably knew it was starting shit up, but, I mean, she genuinely liked the guy, and she owed no one. She wasn't even breaking girl code. Missy didn't even like her. But regardless, Missy was getting angrier day by day. And at the height of Missy's anger, Rena calls up a guy from their school, Chris. She said something along the lines of, hey, is this Chris? Uh, yeah, who is this? I met you last night. I was buying candy while you were getting a Slurpee at Max. Do you remember? Uh, not really. Chris definitely didn't remember. And he definitely didn't remember giving anyone his number. But how did she get it? From the address book. Rena continued, I like you. Let's go on a date. Uh, I don't think that's... Come on, please. I like you. I have a crush on you. Just one date. Chris was a little bit weirded out and he hung up. But Rena kept calling. She called multiple times that afternoon. So he picked up the phone and said, Okay, fine. Let's do it. Is that what you want? Do you want to meet me at Max? 6.30 tonight. Be there. Chris had no intention of showing up. He thought if he physically stood a girl up, she would never call him again. That night, Rena waited and waited at Max for Chris. He never did come. Chris was laying there, 6.30 had just passed, and he's thinking, I mean, what kind of call is that? It's so bizarre. Who would want to even prank me? It felt like a prank. I mean, it's obviously a prank, right? Then it registered. Not too long ago, he had threatened to call the cops on Nicole. Remember? He's like, shit, Nicole probably gave my number to a random girl and was like, hey, call up this Chris dude. He's got a massive crush on you. Tell him you saw him at Max. Oh my God, that's what it had to be. That's the only thing that makes sense. So Chris was annoyed to say the least at this bizarre prank. I mean, he's getting like 20 phone calls a day. So he decides to confront Nicole. He's thinking she's probably gonna hiss in my face, laugh at me, call me dumb, call me gullible for thinking a girl would actually like me. What he didn't expect was that Nicole would apologize. That's just something that Nicole never did. He walked up to her saying, hey, did you give that Rhea girl my number? He could hear Nicole muttering, that little I'm going to kick her face and I'm going to beat her up. Nicole, she's been calling me for like two days straight, 10, maybe 20 times a day. Chris, I'm really sorry. She stole my address book and she's been calling everyone. I'm really sorry. It's just been weird. Chris didn't even register what she said. He said he was too much in shock at the fact that she even apologized. And suddenly he felt like an ass for making such a big deal about it. He just wanted to go home and listen to his favorite CD. He was over it. Uh, It's fine, I guess. I hope you get it figured out or whatever. And as he's walking off, he hears Nicole say, don't worry, you won't be hearing from her again. Chris didn't know that that meant someone was going to die. I'm not sure anyone could have known. If he had known, is there anything he could have even done to stop it? It's such an innocent phrase. But he'd never thought that a bunch of 15-year-old girls would kill a girl. So at this point, Chris hears a threat, doesn't really register as a threat. We can't really blame the guy. But we can blame someone else, Nicole's mom. She said that she remembered that day. Nicole came over and she was on the phone with Kelly, just ranting, going off, really. Now, normally, Nicole's mom doesn't listen to their conversations. It's high school drama all the time. But this time, she remembered hearing an unfamiliar name. It was like a unique name, like Rhea or something. And then after her name, Nicole said, we should go to a forest somewhere and dig a big hole, like a grave. Make it super deep, you know? And then put things on top of the hole to cover it up and then walk with Rhea to the forest and have her fall in and start burying her alive. Nicole's mom heard this. If this were me, and I don't know because I don't have kids, but if I heard anyone say this on the phone, I wouldn't just shrug and go back to loading the dishwasher. I would at the very least have a conversation about how to communicate frustration in a healthy way. 
even if I didn't believe that my daughter was going to full on kill someone, I would at least say, hey, hypothetical homicidal fantasies are not a way to cope with anger. But nope, Nicole's mom felt like it wasn't that serious, even though they kept ranting about it for an hour. Who hasn't gotten mad at someone and plotted a full-on murder? Nicole's mom said that these homicidal fantasies went on for about an hour. Just teenage girl drama stuff, you know? (laughs) It's fine. She kept saying that the bitch deserved to die. Nicole's mom did nothing. And over the next few days, Nicole's friends at school overheard her talking about how she wanted to beat someone up. Nobody paid attention. Nicole always just exaggerated for dramatic effect, like how she said she did cocaine, but she probably only snorted a line of Smarties once on a dare. It's like that. Nicole talked shit. She pretended to be tough. No one thought twice about her assault and murder threats. It's just a casual Tuesday. She even went up to one of her friends and said, Hey, slut, do you want to help me beat up this girl? Nicole never told her who, never told her when, where, or why, but the friend is like, duh, we should totally beat up whoever you hate. Let's do it. I'm down. I just got to ask my mom first. Just teenage girly things. I don't even know if Nicole knew at the time that she was going to hurt someone, but it would happen November 14th. A bunch of Shoreline students got together at the schoolyard to throw a party, which is just wild. Listen, we did some crazy things when we were young, but we never actively got drunk on school grounds on a weekend night. That sounds insane, but that's what they did. So a bunch of kids gathered, including everyone I mentioned, Warren, his girlfriend, Sarita, Rena, Nicole, Kelly, Chris, even Missy was there. And I mean, what's interesting is that Warren had no idea who Rena was. He had never even briefly interacted with Rena. He had Mm -hmm. briefly interacted with Nicole before, but they were hardly friends. Like, I wouldn't even call them acquaintances. Mm -hmm. Same with Kelly. He barely knew these people. He was there with his girlfriend, his girlfriend's best friend, and her boyfriend, right? Mm -hmm. So he's just with his friends. So how did he end up helping Kelly commit murder? Originally, Rena wasn't supposed to be there. She knew what was going on. She knew Nicole and Missy were mad at her. And why would she show up to a party where they were there? Besides, they had been talking to a ton of people about how they wanted to beat someone up. No way, Rena's not going to that. But they convinced her. Before the party, Missy called her. Come on, Rena. It's going to be our making up party. We swear, we're not even mad anymore. I hate my ex and the joke about AIDS was funny. (laughs) You pranked Nicole. We're cool badass sluts, okay? We don't get easily offended. Let's just all make up. Come on. Rena still wasn't excited. She did not feel like it was a good idea, but maybe, maybe they could all be mature. I mean, it is probably just some petty teenage drama, right? On top of that, Nicole and Missy sounded super sincere about making up. So it was settled. Rena would go for a little while to show face, make up with the girls, and then she would go to her parents. Rena packed her bag with her usual essentials, PJs, her diary, and some perfume. And listen, she's not trying to sleep over anywhere. She just always brought these things with her just in case. She leaves the house, tells her family she'll be back by 10 p.m. It's about 7.30. Side note, some interesting facts about that night. It was a full moon that night, and it also happened to be the night that a Russian satellite fell back on Earth and exploded as it fell. The fuel tank, the motor, all the mechanics of the satellite collapsed, couldn't orbit the Earth anymore, and instead it fell apart and burned in the sky as it hit the atmosphere. It resulted in the sky being lit up with red and yellow colors. It was like fireworks on steroids. They could see that? Yeah. It happened around 9, 12 p.m. The Shoreline students were already partying at the schoolyard at this time. About 50 to 60 of them. So you can imagine how chaotic and how loud it was. But when the Russian rocket or the satellite fell back to Earth and exploded, it was silent. They all had their necks craned up looking at the sky in silence, in awe about 
the doom. It looked like it was about to descend upon them. They said it looked very spooky, but at the same time, it's like they were captivated and entranced by the lights. They couldn't look away. It almost looked like an alien invasion was happening. Later, when the police questioned the kids about what happened that night, everyone would refer to it as the night the Russian satellite fell because nobody wanted to say the night that Reno was murdered. After the Russian fireworks, Sarita told Warren she wanted to go home. She just didn't feel well. Everything felt off. She was over it. So he walks her to the bus station, gives her some money for the bus. And when she gets home, Sarita said she just couldn't fall asleep. She felt uneasy, just had this bad gut feeling. She, she didn't know how to describe it. It just wasn't good. Around 10 p.m. at the party, one of the partygoers, a shoreline student, and I don't know if this is sheer boredom. I don't know if it's just being 14 and having anger issues. I don't know. A student thought, why don't I just take the heaviest rock I can find and chuck it out the school window until it breaks? Why not? So that's what he did. He had no idea that it would change the entire course of the night. The minute the rock hit the window, all hell broke loose. A girl, let's call her Brittany, walks up to the group of friends and says, I'm here to fight a girl. No hello, nothing. Brittany was a girl that didn't need an intro. She knew how to make an entrance. She was intimidating, more intimidating than Missy. Brittany was trained in martial arts. She loved kickboxing. She had this look about her. Long black hair, always wore thick black eyeliner. Everyone called her Cleopatra. Her nickname was Regal. It almost felt untouchable. It made her more intimidating. So Brittany continued, I'm here to fight a girl whose name starts with an R or an S. As soon as Rena heard this announcement, she noped out of there. She made a break for it. No, really, she just started running, which makes sense. Like, you know, she's heard all these rumors. All of a sudden, this girl that she doesn't know. Oddly enough, Nicole, Missy, Kelly, and Brittany all break out into a run, too. And they quickly catch up with Rena. At this point, they're like near the street. And Missy starts talking. I promise you, Rena, we're not trying to fight you. We want you to party with us tonight. Let's just have fun. Brittany's like, yeah, I was talking about another girl and she's not even here. Meanwhile, they're chasing her. Yeah, Rena's like, I don't believe you. Why were you running after me then? Yeah. And she's starting to feel unsafe. So she slips away from the girls, makes it to a phone booth nearby, calls up her brother, right? She's like, hey, I'm coming home. Can you tell my mom? I think Rena just wanted to hear a familiar voice a comforting voice, but she felt like she couldn't tell them what was going on. The girls were right outside the phone booth, and maybe she was paranoid, but she hung up and she felt scared. But what was she going to do? They're outside waiting for her. I mean, she can't just stay in this phone booth. I think Rena just wanted to put on a brave face and walk out. She walked out and announced, I'm going home. But as soon as she was outside, Missy grabbed her, got up in her face and said, you're being a bitch. And everyone starts screaming, yeah, why are you being such a bitch? We don't even want to beat you up. Come on, come on, stay, party with us. No, I just want to catch the bus and go home. My parents are going to be mad. I have to go home. Missy snatched the bus pass from Rena, tore it up and threw it up into the air ceremoniously like it was confetti. Missy and Nicole moved to either side of Rena and linked arms with her. They start walking with her, like holding her up by her arms, basically dragging her. I mean, I guess if you look from the outside, it looked like Two friends taking a drunk girl home, but Rena wasn't drunk, and they were not her friends, and they weren't going home. At some point, I don't know where they were even headed. I don't know if they knew where they were headed. But a few girls showed up to say, hey guys, the party got busted. The rock that went through the window, yeah, well, it set off something and the police came, so everyone made a run for it. You guys should join us. We're down by the bridge now. Well, we're kind of like under the bridge. So this is strange because this random bridge was not a place teenagers hung out. I know it sounds like it. I know it sounds like a popular hangout spot, but the bridge was old, rusty. It stretched across a body of water known as the gorge. 
under the bridge, like right under it, was a dark wall covered in graffiti. The The area felt less like a bridge and more like a dirty, creepy, smelly cave. The ground was uneven. It sloped into the gorge. I mean, it. like I said, it sounds like a teenage hangout spot, but it really wasn't. It wasn't fun to be there at all. It's kind of stinky, not that scenic. One girl said, I don't know. We just went under there. We didn't know where else to go. I'm not even sure why we went there, if I'm being honest. I guess we were just running and then came to the bridge and we just all gathered. I love meal deliveries. In fact, I love everything about having my meals delivered straight to my doorstep, except the delivery fees. That's why I signed up for the Dash Pass, an exclusive membership from DoorDash that lets you make an unlimited amount of fee-free orders for eligible orders. Whether it's food from your favorite restaurants, groceries from across town, or anything in between, the Dash Pass can get you $0 deliveries and lower service fees on eligible orders. That means you can easily save money at your favorite restaurants and groceries stores the dash pass practically pays for itself in two orders on average the math is mathing plus dash pass gives you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items and all of this for only $9.99 a month open the door to zero dollar delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else sign up for dash pass today only on doordash and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member subject to change terms apply I don't really like doing chores around the house, I'm going to be honest with you, and I especially used to hate doing laundry. It was just one of my more tedious tasks. It takes so much time, and I often feel tempted to not even bother sorting out my clothes. But I've been trying to motivate myself to get a lot more organized, and I finally found a way to make doing my chores so much more interesting, so much more engaging, and that's by listening to audiobooks on Audible. You guys know me, there is nothing like playing a good psychological thriller. So obviously, that's what I've been listening to. I'm currently listening to The Housemaid by Frida McFadden. The main character, Millie, is out on parole and she's desperate for a job. She doesn't have any money. She's living out of her car and she gets this opportunity to be this rich family's housemaid. Millie agrees, even though there's just something really strange about the Winchesters, especially the wife, Nina. She just seems to love finding ways to make Millie's life very difficult. The family is hiding something and Millie is hiding something and there's just so much tension between Millie and the husband. It's one of those stories that you can't stop listening to and I can't wait to finish it and start the next audiobook in this series. But if Thriller is not your thing, don't worry. Audible lets you pick from thousands of titles to find the perfect soundtrack to your day. You can find audiobooks from any genre, fiction, nonfiction, wellness, self-help. But they also have podcasts like this one, guided wellness programs, comedy, and originals. Living life without using Audible is like eating food with no seasoning. Sure, you still get your nutrients in, but it's missing that extra flavor, you know? So if you want to spice up your day, I highly recommend Audible. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try audible now free for 30 days visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 that's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 to try audible free for 30 days so nicole and missy dragged rena to the bridge and most of the party had broken up so when there used to be 50 to 60 people now there are about 14 girls and two boys warren and one of his friends so remember their girlfriends were best friends let's call the guy dan Dan's girlfriend was probably the youngest of the entire group. She hadn't even turned 14 yet. She's very petite, literally the smallest person there. She's also very shy. So as soon as Nicole and her friends show up, dragging Rena under the bridge, the girlfriend had a really bad feeling about the whole thing. She starts getting nervous. They're being loud, aggressive. And Nicole is yelling, you're trying to ruin my life. And Rena looked at her and pleaded, no, Nicole, like, I'm sorry. I wouldn't do that. I'm sorry, please. 
Witnesses said it was like a blur of voices just accusing Rena, accusing her of bullshitting and lying to them, and Rena just pleading, no, no, like, please. Nicole was smoking a cigarette to complete her bad girl vibes, and she pushed the burning cigarette into Rena's forehead, searing her skin. Rena cried out and tried to swing at Nicole to get her to stop. But as her fist made contact with Nicole, Kelly swooped in to save her best friend and punched Rena. Warren's friends were shocked the whole time. I mean, his girlfriend was clinging to Dan, feeling as if if she just breathed the wrong way, the group would turn around and pour their hatred onto her. It was just, it was a lot. Rena tried multiple times to escape the circle, but each time they would just grab her, drag her back. She was trapped. And it didn't even matter who threw the first punch. More girls joined the circle, about a dozen of them at one point, just slapping, punching, and kicking Rena. Warren and his friend were just watching from the side, but suddenly Warren broke away and walked up to the girls. So Dan's thinking, okay, maybe he's going to try and put a stop to it. But no, Warren's friend said he saw him walk up and kick Rena in the head. Why? What the hell? Warren didn't even know Rena. They hadn't even met. They weren't even acquaintances. There was literally not a single reason on the wor- in the planet for him to freaking kick her. I mean, it's impossible to understand. Maybe he had so much pent-up anger about his own life, he saw an opportunity to blow his fuse without being judged, but, I mean, he was gonna get judged. Even his friend tried to pull him away from the girls, and he was like, chill out, Warren, what the fuck, it's not even your fight. He said that Warren just had this look in his eyes, like he was possessed, like a moth attracted to the flame, and he immediately turned around and went back to the angry mob of girls assaulting Rena. Rena was beaten so hard she was face down in the mud. She was pleading, please stop, please, I'm sorry. She was sobbing, pleading with everyone, which is insane because, I mean, sure, she did something to Nicole. Maybe she did something to Missy, but not really. Nothing to warrant this type of behavior. I don't think anything warrants this type of vile, disgusting behavior. But to add to that, there are so many girls here that don't even know Rena. They've never met her. Rena has never done anything to them. And yet here they are showing their true colors, beating a girl an inch of her life for what? For giggles, for popularity? Suddenly, Brittany became protective and she screamed, everybody stop. Next person to punch her gets punched by me. And as soon as Brittany spoke, nobody dared to touch Rena. Everybody backed off. Brittany would later say it's not because she cared for Rena or anything. She was scared that the beating had gone too far. Rena had stopped moving. Missy was now watching Rena and her knuckles were throbbing with how hard she was punching her. And finally, she moved. Rena sat up on the ground, her whole face just covered in blood and tears. And she sobbed and begged, I'm sorry, okay? Please, I'm sorry. I just want to go home now. And almost immediately, the girls scattered in different directions. Some fled completely running off into the woods or running home. They felt ashamed. Good, they should be. I think seeing Rena's face covered in blood, I, I hope they took a good look and realized how disgusting they were and saw the true monsters they were. Listen, I don't even want to hear that they're just 15 I don't know a single person that did this when they were 15. This wouldn't have even crossed my mind at 15. Others lingered around confused at what just happened and confused on what to do next. Nobody tried to help Rena or get medical attention for her or even tried to help her get home. They saw her get up, limp past the girls, broken, bleeding, staggering. She looked lightheaded and dazed. The girls had taken Rena's backpack with her things and while they watched her limp away, they started destroying her things. They threw her PJs into the water, ripped apart her diary, smashed her perfume bottle against the ground. And this is where the story gets murky. Nicole and Missy said that they went back to their group home at around 11.03 p.m. 
They hadn't done drugs. They said that they were high on adrenaline. They barely slept that night. The next morning, they were just talking about, what do we do? We got to go back to that bridge. We got to get Rena's stuff so she can't rat us out. They didn't want to leave evidence of the assault. They remembered leaving her shoes, her Adidas jacket, her clothes. But when they went back to the bridge, it wasn't there. So this is wild. A local passerby had noticed him close, picked it up and thought it was probably a student's. And being the good civilian that he was, he brought it to the shoreline school grounds and just left it on the building steps. And like, what are the odds of this, right? Who are these people? I'm so confused. So there's a jacket and shoes on the school steps. Another passerby is walking by, notices it, and on closer inspection, notices that the Adidas jacket is a bit bloody, maybe about four to five drops of blood. They said it didn't look like a lot of blood, so they just thought, ah, kids will be kids, and walked off. Then another passerby, I'm not making this up, it's wild. Another passerby, this time an older woman, notices the jacket. And she had a friend whose grandson was a Shoreline student, and apparently he was complaining that someone had stolen the jacket, an Adidas jacket. So this woman just walked by and assumed that she stumbled upon her friend's grandson's stolen jacket. So she took it. And when she got it, she noticed that there were blood on the inside of the sleeves, on the back of the inside, on the front, blood everywhere inside this jacket. It looked like a crime scene. But she didn't think anything of it. She thought, well, whoever stole good old Robbie's jacket must have gotten into a nasty fight over it. Let me just clean it for them. She bleached the jacket and washed it. Does that mean she washed away evidence? Or? Yeah. Nicole and Missy get to the bridge. They find Rena's guest bag and they threw it into the local dumpster. Later, Brittany shows up under the bridge. She went for a different reason, not to clean up Rena's stuff. But she told a friend of hers she was worried that Rena was still there because she was that out of it last night. Around the same time, Kelly Ellard was starting to get nervous. And the thing about Kelly is that when she's nervous, she talks and talks and talks. She was on a walk to clear her head and it was raining lightly. She didn't care. She walked till she ran into a 15-year-old from their school that she never really talked to. The boy said that he was later puzzled by the entire interaction. Kelly came up to him and at first he thought that she was cute. And maybe this was his chance to shoot his shot, right? But she wasn't having it. She was not receptive to his flirting. Instead, she just started trauma dumping on him. She was talking so fast. She said, I got into a fight with a girl and I beat up a girl and she was beat up so bad. She didn't even know who she was anymore. Then we beat her up some more after that and we beat her up some more and I walked her home and she was beat up some more and then she was beat up so bad and now she's dead. The boy was taken aback, but ultimately they're 15. He didn't think that this was true. He just said, I'm sure whoever you beat up is not dead. No, but she is. She's dead because her head was under the water and all this red stuff floated up and it was all bubbly and it came out from her and it was it was around both of us and it was like around me, this red stuff and she floated to the top. I saw her float. I saw it. But there were other people there too. It wasn't just me. Other people helped kill her. The boy is like, uh-huh, okay. He didn't know how to respond so he just walked off. But I don't think that he would ever forget this interaction for the rest of his life, especially when he found out the truth. He was talking to a killer. The same day, at Sarita's house, Warren showed up with a small load of his laundry. He was ashamed and she was pissed at him. Not for doing laundry at her place, but her friend had told her everything. Why on earth would you kick some random girl in the head? What's wrong with you? He just said, I, I don't know what happened, sorry. So she sighed, took his clothes to the laundry room. She didn't see the blood right away since she was partially blind. But eventually she did. Two spots of blood about the size of a quarter. She knew it was probably from that weird fight she was hearing about. She was pissed off at Warren, but she dropped the pants into the washing machine, further destroying evidence. The Virk family didn't have the mental capacity to do their laundry that day. They were freaking out. Rena hadn't come back home like she promised. Where on earth was Rena? They went to the police station that day to file a missing persons report. And you guessed it. The police did not give a fork. 
They assumed Rena was a runaway from home, just another troubled teenager on the streets, which is really terrifying to think that the police don't take it seriously because troubled teenage runaways, they're a lot more vulnerable to sex traffickers, abusers, kidnappers, killers. So regardless of why they're not home, they're in the line of fire. But the cops are like, ah, she's a big girl at the ripe age of 14. She's 14, sir. What are you doing? Rena's family had no idea what to do. Meanwhile, Nicole got a new roommate at her group home named Nadja. Nadja was Russian and she had come in with her younger sister, Anya. Little background about the two sisters. Nadja and Anya were super street smart kids. They had to grow up fast. They had nothing but a small bag of belongings. They had nobody that cared about them, but they had each other. They were considered wise behind their years. And immediately upon walking in, Nadja knew that her roommate, Nicole, was just full of herself. Probably full of shit. Nicole had a bunch of photos of herself hanging around the room. There were beauty magazines scattered everywhere, a Chanel perfume, a guest bag. And when Nadia walked in, without even so much as a hello, Nicole walks over and says, Have you heard of me? I'm Nicole Cook. Uh, sure you are. Let me tell you something, but you can't tell anyone, okay? Um, okay. There's this girl named Rina, and I hate her. I hate her. She's a fake friend. She lied to me all the time. She made up stories about me, and one day I got pissed off. She just hated that I was prettier than her. Nadia was confused, like she had no idea who this girl was, who Rena was, or why this whole thing was, why are you even talking to me? Anyway, we beat her up, and a friend of mine, my best friend, called this morning to tell me that she's dead. And I was like, how is she dead? And my friend said, after that we left, they kept going, and they threw her in the water, and blood was coming out of her mouth. My friend told me that she drowned her. So we don't know much about Nadia, but it's said that Nadia is always the type of person that takes on a protective role. She's very protective over her little sister. She had a rough life, yes, but she had like a strong sense of morals. She was like, I don't believe you. Nicole was like, you don't believe me? And I think Nicole was trying to impress her. Then call her. I'll give the family number. Call Rena's family and ask for Rena. They haven't seen her. She's gone. So she took the number and Nicole was dumb to run her mouth to someone she just met. But Kelly was equally dumb. The following Monday at school, the girls went to the principal's office and asked for the newspaper. Uh, what do you guys need the newspaper for? One of our friends is missing. We want to see if there's anything in the paper about her. She was with us Friday night and then went missing. Oh, wow, that's terrible. What do you guys think must have happened to her? Uh, she probably just like ran away. Maybe she tried to kill herself. Kelly said, I saw her walk up the highway. So she probably got picked up by a bunch of guys. That's what guys like to do. They probably took her away with them. Nicole laughed and said, well, I think she jumped off the bridge into the gorge. The principal was creeped out, but she gave the girls a newspaper. And I guess they expected to see a huge front page article about Rena's disappearance or death, but nothing. They shrugged and left the office. Meanwhile, Nadia is talking to her little sister Anya about what to do. Nicole had even given Rena's family number, so as proof, they called. Rena's mom picked up and said, I haven't seen her since Friday. And they hung up and Nadia couldn't get over it. It was November, the holidays were coming up, and the sisters, they thought about Rena's family spending Christmas without their daughter. The sisters got up and walked to a local police station. Now, I just want, again, for anyone who's going to say, these kids were 15, these sisters are 15, maybe younger. And going to a police station is a lot for these girls. They hate the cops. They had run-ins with the law. Officers typically weren't nice to them. They had nobody to protect them. The cops weren't looking out for them. But in this situation, it kind of helped. The officers knew the sisters, and even though the sisters were young and they were reckless, they weren't gossiping shit starters. The sisters would never willingly go to the police unless something serious was going on. So they took everything they said very seriously. And just like that, Rena Virk's missing persons report became a potential homicide. But the police would continue to fumble the case. They went to interview Missy, 
And she told the cops, What? The last time I saw Rena was on Friday night. Nicole called Rena to see if she wanted to come party with us, and we all agreed to meet up at Walmart. But when we met up, Rena didn't want to party with us. She said she would just see us later. She left with some guys. Yeah, we went to the party, but Rena wasn't there. We called her the day after on Saturday, and her mom told us she was missing, so that's all we know. Now, right after finishing up with Missy, instead of going straight to find Nicole, they let Missy go back into the group home where Nicole was, and they just waited. I don't know what they were waiting for, but they waited. Maybe the officers waited to give them some time to, I don't know, collude. So when the police finally talked to Nicole, which, what the hell took so long? Nicole's story was identical to Missy's. So she was free to go. She calls up Kelly and says, oh my God, you'll never believe it. I was talking to the cops today and I'm just saying if shit goes down, we can go to Mexico. Missy said jail's not even that bad. She said it's actually kind of fun. Maybe it would be cool if we go to jail because when we get out, we could be like, hell yeah, I just got out of jail. Kelly's like, what? No, Nicole, I would rather kill myself than go to jail. I'm going to Mexico. Before hanging up, the two promised they would always be there for each other. I'm your best friend, Nicole. I will always be there for you no matter what. Kelly, I love you. I'll do anything for you. A few days later, they were all arrested. Warren and the six girls that would become known as the Shoreline Six. Only Warren and Kelly would end up prosecuted, but that doesn't mean the others weren't involved. And maybe even more people that weren't arrested. We will never really know what happened to Rena that night. And I do think that a lot, a majority of these people got off because the destruction of the evidence, the police incompetence, but also straight up racism. I'm going to be honest with you. Like they did not look into this case as well as they should have. They did not treat it with the urgency that they should have. I mean, just listen to this. Search teams find Rena's body. And before we get to the autopsy, we need to talk about the kids getting arrested. So Kelly, Nicole's best friend, she was inside the interrogation room with her mom. She was aggressively calling cops assholes, screaming about how much she hated them. Kelly's mom pointed to the camera in the corner of the room, trying to be like, hey, shut up. But it only enraged Kelly further. She screamed at the camera, I hate cops, I hate the system, and then flicked the camera off. She said, I'm gonna beat up whoever said I killed Rena. I didn't, I'm gonna kill them. I'm, gonna, I'm not even gonna go to school anymore. And then wow. when she finally calmed down, she looked at her mom and said, Mom, I'm scared. Can't you just get me out of here? And her mom's like, no, sweetie, I can't just get you out of here. But you're my mom. Can't you, like, get me out on probation or something? So she felt like everything she does, the yeah. mom will just take care of. Yeah. That's why she acted that way. Mm -hmm. It was wild. When Nicole was arrested, she was really upset that the police tried to confiscate her purse. She said, that has my face cream, my cigarettes, my mascara, my perfume. I need those. When Warren was arrested, the cops said he genuinely looked terrified. Out of all the suspects, he had the most to worry about. They straight up told him, you're the only guy in this case. You're going to go down. Rena's clothes were found off. Girls don't take off other girls' clothes. And additionally, we have a lot of witnesses that remember seeing you kicking Rena in the head that night. On top of that, Rena weighed 180 pounds. Kelly weighs, what, 110 pounds. There's no way that she did this on her own. You must have helped drag Rena down to the gorge to drown her. Warren pleaded, please, I don't even bench press 180 pounds. Yeah, we don't give a shit about how much you can bench press. We know you did it. And it, what, what, what? No, why would I take off Rena's clothes? I have no interest. I have a girlfriend. Yeah, but we took a look at your stuff. You also have 20 pictures of girls in your wallet. No, that, those are friends. Sure, with hearts on the back. Listen, you're a womanizer. Maybe you're even addicted to sex. You wanted to do something to Rena, didn't you? Warren asked for an attorney and they didn't give him one. And they kept going. So after a long interrogation, Warren broke down and admitted to being under the bridge that night. He said that after everybody left, Kelly told him that they have to talk to Rena to find out exactly what happened. Kelly said she wanted to see if Rena was actually sorry for the trouble she caused. 
Warren said Kelly went over to the bridge and asked Rena to take her shoes off and her jacket, and then Kelly just went at it. She beat up Rena some more until she was woozy, even grabbing her head at one point and smashing it against a tree. Kelly was kicking her in the head and the ribs, and then they dragged her to the gorge. I kept pleading with Kelly, like, come on, let's just leave. Why don't we just leave? I mean, I believe Warren didn't want to kill Rena as badly as Kelly did, but some of his story doesn't make sense. Why didn't he walk away? Why didn't he get help? And he tried to say that he didn't know that Kelly was trying to drown Rena. He said, oh, I was just helping her drag her down to the gorge. The prosecutors are like, well, what did you think was going to happen? Well, I didn't think she was going to die. What did you think was going to happen in the water? I don't know. Warren claimed he never went into the water. He said, I know I should have stopped it all, but I didn't. I should have left before any of this happened. He said that his involvement in the murder was a three and Kelly was a seven. Warren said all he did was kick her a few times, help drag her about 10 feet, and then uh, just was around. That was the extent of his crime. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. They found Rena's body and let's talk about the autopsy. Rena was naked except for her underwear. Autopsy indicated no signs of trauma to the genital area, so she wasn't sexually assaulted. But she was severely beaten. She had bruising and swelling, very bruised cheeks, a large laceration on her lips. Her nose was bruised. They had bloody discharge coming out of both her nostrils. Red marks on her shoulders, bruising on the collarbone, the cigarette burn on her forehead. On the back of her head, she had a mark that looked consistent with a sneaker being kicked into her head. She had a pattern of footwear on the left side of her back, a large bruise on the left side of her voice box, and that's what they could see on the outside. When they went to the inside, there was damage to practically every internal organ. Her stomach was completely massacred. The lining of her stomach was torn and all of her abdominal muscles were in bad shape. Her injuries were consistent with victims of car crashes. The crushing impact of the blows led to organ failure. I mean, this just speaks volumes to how intense the assault on Rena was. She suffered so much internal bleeding that her abdominal cavity was just pulverized. She had trauma to the head. She suffered a brain hemorrhage. Her head was swollen, yet she survived. Her cause of death was drowning. She was still breathing when she was rolled into the gorge. Warren pleaded saying it was all Kelly during his juryless judge trial, but the judge didn't believe him. The prosecutor's theory was that they both willingly dragged Rena into the water. Kelly held Rena down in the water until she died. Warren was found guilty, sentenced to life in a notoriously tough prison, but he would be eligible for parole in 2004. Shortly after arriving in prison, Warren decided to get a prison tattoo on his back that said, First Love. But him and Sarita had broken up. Like, it was a lot. Now, this is crazy. And uh, I have so much respect and admiration for how Rena's family carried themselves. Because they did the unthinkable. They forgave Warren. What? Warren was a model prisoner. And he asked to privately meet with them. He apologized for everything. And in this extraordinary act of forgiveness, they accepted his apology and supported his request for full parole in 2010. Wow. Rena said, I accepted his apology because of all those accused. He is the only one that has taken responsibility for his actions. And Warren was finally out. He had been in prison since he was 15, and he got out in his late 20s. He said it was really hard to adjust. Life was tough. But there's no other updates on him because he kept a low profile. Now, the rest. The Shoreline Six, which included Nicole, Missy, Brittany, and the three other girls. They were not charged with murder. Yeah, there's a lot so of talks that... they lighter sentence? Oh, the reason that their names are not even allowed to be printed in Canadian press is because they were sentenced as juveniles. 
they got assault charges, not even aggravated assault, just regular assault charges. No one would see their face. No one would hear their names. No one would ever know that these girls had a hand in somebody's death. So, I mean, yeah, you do have to wonder if there is racism at play because do I think that if a bunch of immigrant kids, a bunch of minorities beat up a Caucasian girl, do I think that they would have gotten such light sentences? Probably not. Nobody really thinks that. Are you kidding? So three of the girls pled guilty. The other three girls had a very short trial and they all got very short sentences in juvie. Like nothing happened to them. So only Kelly remained. And unlike the other girls, she would be charged with murder. Nicole refused to testify or incriminate Kelly in the murder, but Kelly did not keep that friendship promise. She said, Nicole is demented. This is all her fault. She worships Satan. She convinced me to do this. She claimed that she never touched Rena, let alone murdered her. And she said that she never crossed the bridge with Warren and that the Shoreline Six were colluding against her and framing her. Nobody believed her. She was found guilty of second degree murder. In 2001, the Supreme Court overturned Kelly's appeal and she was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. But she was not a model prisoner. She was a fan of hoarding toothbrushes, trying to make uh, makeshift shanks out of them. She also confessed to being hooked on meth for a year while in prison. It's not even legal. But just before her 30th birthday, she cleaned up her act, got a job, became pen pals with a guy named Darwin, who was a former felon with gang ties. They had conjugal visits. She gets pregnant in 2016. In 2017, she applies for parole. And um, yeah, she didn't get it, but she got some sort of escorted prison releases. So she is now allowed four nights a week outside on supervised custody. What? Is it because of the kid or the kid but also they think like maybe she can eventually rehabilitate mm. she changed her name to carrie marie sim she's now 39 years old she has recently applied for full parole but that's been denied i believe she's still allowed her like daytime parole and stuff honestly from what i can find she never apologized or even admitted any wrongdoing so it's hard to say that i think that she deserves parole there's no reason for any of these people to assault and kill and torture rena and i think someone like that who does that with no reason at all regardless of how old they were is a very scary person to society so no i don't think she should be let out and that's the story of rena verk this one hit really close to home because i grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood and even though i was born in the states even though i spoke english it just was i always felt like something was wrong with me like i just couldn't compete i couldn't keep up so there were so many times where I thought, yeah, I have to be extra cool in order to even be considered cool to these people. Like I have to be extra crazy. And it's just so sad. And I think it's a life experience that a lot of second generation immigrants go through. That was it for this week's main episode. Stay safe out there and I'll see you guys on Sunday for the mini-sode. Bye.